Listen, we are in the book of Colossians. We are in the second chapter. And today we're going to talk about godliness is better than religious rules. Now, I don't know what kind of religious background you grew up in or where you kind of came from. All of us have very different stories, I'm sure. But we all have some kind of religious background. We've, we've been taught some religious rules probably in our lives. But today we're going to see that having godly behavior, because we have a true and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, is far better, far better than trying to live by religious rules. Now, we'll get a better understanding of the specifics of the reason Paul's writing to the Colossians instead of Paul just kind of alluding to it. In the first chapter and in the first part of the second chapter, we saw that it's kind of alluding to the reasons why he was writing to them. Your faith is good, your hope is good, your love is good. And those are kind of the three ways that he grades a church. And so we see that and we go, why is he writing to this church? Why, if they're doing so well in everything, why is he writing? We're gonna see it really clearly in this passage. So we're going to pick up with Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Let's read what it says. Here's what it says. It says, therefore, now let's stop right there. Okay? When we read the scriptures, folks, and we see a therefore, we should always stop and make sure we know what it is there for. Okay? It's about to say because of something. This is like a logic problem in philosophy class. Because of one thing, therefore, this takes place. And if we don't know what the therefore is, therefore, we don't know what it's comparing and how it's connecting these two things. Uh, so last week, we just if you weren't here, we just got through reading about uh, how we were once dead in our sins but are now alive in Christ. That was a key part of last week's reading, right before this part. We read about how we should embrace and live in our freedom that Christ bought for us on the cross by paying for our debt, by offering forgiveness for our sins, and defeating the enemies and their accusations about our past failures. Do you remember that? In fact, uh, we had a cross down here in front, and before we took the Lord's Supper, we asked you to, to uh, maybe write a sin that you struggle with or, or one that you need victory over and come and bring it and actually nail it physically to the cross as a symbol that you understand and you comprehend that what Jesus did for us is so complete and so perfect and so wonderful that he's already paid for our sins, past, present, and future. They're all forgiven. Now, we see a therefore. So what Paul is saying is because Jesus has done this for you, because these are the ramifications of his, his price that he gave his body and his blood for you, because of this, therefore, listen up. All right? And so now let's read what the therefore is therefore in verses 16 through 23. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Now, these are not some very simple uh, uh, verses that you could read a child in the third grade and have them explain to you that Jesus loves them. There's more to it than that. And so let's get started. Let's pull these verses apart a little bit and see what they are really uh, saying. There's three big principles in this passage. And uh, the first one is this. Do not fall back into the slavery of the law. Let's go back and read verses 16 and 17. They say this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, it seems that there were some Judaizers in this church who were trying to impose the Old Testament ceremonial law on the Christians. Paul's saying, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. Christ has come and canceled, he's fulfilled the ceremonial law. If Christ has freed you, why would you become entangled with the law again? Stop judging one another in this regard. So what he's saying is this. Look, uh, let's say you have this big pile of bricks. You're carrying them around. This is the law. Jesus comes and frees on through life. You think, well, you know, there was those dietary laws. We should probably... Probably she'll, should obey those, so let's carry that back up. Uh, you know, those, those, those ceremonies really helped us to focus, so we're going to, and you start doing all these things again, and all of a sudden you're carrying this big load of bricks again for no reason. For no reason. The Old Testament law was a shadow of things to come, it was pointing to Christ and the gospel. Uh, folks, history. Uh, if we think about it here, just our, our American history this week, when you look at the world's history, when you look at all of history, it's really very simple. Very simple to explain. Everything before the cross led up to the resurrection, the, the crucifixion and resurrection, and everything after the crucifixion and resurrection points back to it. Now, that's a one-hour class, right? You should get credit for that. That's a one-hour history class right there. That is World History 101. Everything before the cross points to it, and everything after the cross points back to it because it is the center of all history. What Paul's saying is here, folks, the law never had any intrinsic value in and of itself. It never brought anybody righteousness because nobody could keep it except that it's symbolic representation of the reality that was to come, which is Christ and his body, the church, was valuable. In other words, the symbolism was valuable because it was pointing to Jesus. It had no intrinsic value in and of itself. Nobody could live up to the law. Nobody ever obeyed it perfectly. All it brought was condemnation, not righteousness. It brought condemnation so that when Jesus came on the planet, everybody should have said, finally, thank you, God, for a Savior. But of course they didn't. To continue celebrating the ceremonial laws of the past kind of implies that Christ has not yet come or the gospel had no effect. I mean, we're almost saying, you know, it wasn't really, it wasn't really perfect. It really didn't completely fulfill it. So somehow I've got to still do it for something that's yet to come. It's kind of goofy. You're practicing looking forward to that which has already come. Doesn't make any sense. 
See, those in the Old Testament had the shadows of reality. We have the substance of it by knowing Jesus. For us, of course, this specific situation doesn't apply much probably to our church. We don't have a lot of Christian Jews insisting that we all participate in the Old Testament ceremonial festivals and dietary laws, thankfully. But these principles still apply, folks. Paul certainly had to deal with issues of food, like eating that which was offered to idols and drink and drunkenness. He talks about them in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians. But Paul's approach was never to forbid food and drink, but to forbid what destroyed God's temple and hurt others' faith. And that principle applies to us. Paul always taught the principle of love, but didn't always determine its perfect application. Sometimes we do slip into our own traditions and kind of sacred cows that really have no biblical support as churches. I remember uh, being in a church where we decided uh, that it was probably best for us to discontinue Sunday school and go to groups in the homes on the week. And I think when the pastor announced that, I, I really believe somebody behind me yelled, crucify, you know? I mean, stop Sunday school, God forbid, Jesus taught Sunday school. How can you do that? You know, we kind of get these thoughts in our heads. But Paul taught love instead. We can fall into judgment of one another because others in the church don't follow specific traditions or thought processes exactly like we do, and we let those things divide us, folks. We need to be careful of this. We need to be cautious of this. I'm thinking about things, and I'm not here to tell you how to do that. Uh, we, we certainly, when Christmas comes, we teach our grandsons, like we taught our children, that the key to that is Jesus, and, and we have a birthday cake for Jesus. We sing happy birthday to Jesus on his birthday. Uh, one of the kids gets to go to the manger and take Jesus out of the manger and bring him into the kitchen next to the birthday cake while we sing. That may be a little goofy to you. Uh, I, frankly, it's a little goofy to me. But, but it teaches our grandsons at a very early age that this, this whole day is about Jesus' birthday. Now, now Santa comes overnight, and he brings gifts, and we open our presents, and we do some of those other things. But folks, the point is not how you do it or when you do it or what, how, you know. The thing is this, folks. We have some freedom in Christ. When the Bible doesn't say specifically what to do, we have a level of freedom and liberty. And I'll tell you why here in just a little bit. But it's important that we don't judge each other. See, I might tell you the way that we practice that or the way that we do that or how we try to keep the focus about Jesus' birthday, but how you do it is up to you. I'm not going to impose what we've decided is the best way for our family on you. Now, by the way, I'm not talking about specific sins that the Bible specifically says are wrong. Those are universal. They're, they're universally true for everybody. But I'm talking about these other areas like Paul was. The second principle I see in this passage is not to let yourself be judged by any form of legalism or religious elitism. We're kind of uh, talking about that already a little bit. Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 says this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Now, although the word legalism is not found in the Bible, the principle certainly is, and it's right here, folks. It's right here in this passage. Legalism is the practice of extra-biblical rules and regulations that man puts on himself and others. 
as though they were from the Bible. Look carefully at the wording in this passage. It says, let no one disqualify you. What Paul's saying is, listen, don't let any of these things disqualify you from membership in the body or ministry or service or anything. Again, we're not talking about specific sins. We're talking about opinions and thoughts and ideas that are extra biblical. When he says insisting on asceticism, asceticism is the belief that a person can obtain a kind of a higher spiritual position or moral state by denying themselves or abstaining from certain practices. Now, if you have a specific non-biblical conviction about something, you should abstain from it. Okay, do it. But don't force your extra-biblical conviction on others in the body of Christ. That's legalism. Now, most of you in this room are not old enough to know the big five. But if you were around when people, when pastors were preaching in the 60s and 70s, you know what the big five are, right? Smoking, drinking, dancing, playing cards, and going to movies. And I heard sermon after sermon about how those five things would just send you to hell in a handbasket. It's crazy. Good people with good motives, but outside of what the scripture teaches. Now, I'm not saying those things are all good. You should do them all, okay? But what I'm saying is this. You, you, if you've gone to Fellowship of Grace from even early on, in the last 11 years, I've not preached a single a sermon on smoking. Uh, mostly because I preach about gluttony, which, uh, okay? I haven't preached a single sermon on movies. Haven't preached a single sermon on dancing. Probably because I'd have to show you examples that I don't want to do, okay? Uh, here's why we don't do that, folks. Because I, I've been called by God to be a pastor. I have my lane to stay in, okay? I'm here to encourage you to point you to Jesus, I want you to get connected with him. I don't want his job. I got enough to do with my job. Listen, here's what I know. If I get you connected to Jesus, if I can encourage you in that and, and, and cheerlead you to that and help you, Jesus, I don't have to talk to you about those other things. God will talk to you about those other things. He'll work them out in your life. I don't want to take on the Holy Spirit's job. It's too big, and I wouldn't do it very well anyway. I'm going to let him do his job. I'll do my job. That's why you don't hear a lot of uh, things about it. Now, now listen, folks, when it comes to, to biblical sins that are in biblical passages, we talk about them here. We don't avoid them. We don't play games. What God says, God says. But I've also, when you look at uh, you know, dancing, and I've heard, all, I mean, I've heard every sermon you could possibly think of, every viewpoint, every verse taken out of context, every principle tried to apply to it. Listen, there is, there is a, a part of dancing. You know, I've seen Footloose a hundred times, Okay. Uh, I know it's in the Bible. Uh, and, and so there's a good dancing and there's a bad dancing. But it's not for me to draw the line for you where that is. That's for God to draw that line for you and help you learn to follow him. You're not going to give an account to me any, anytime soon, ever. But you will give an account to him. In this passage, it talks about the worship of angels. Now, some were introducing the worship of angels as intermediaries to God in the Colossian church. Now, think about that for a minute. For a minute. On the outside, from the human perspective, it appears very humble to suggest that, listen, I am too lowly to really go to God directly. And so I'm going to pray to angels. I'm going to talk to angels so that they can speak to God for me. They're closer to Him than I am. 
But it's not humility that drives that, folks. It's taking the honor due Christ and giving it to a created being. These are the inventions of man, not divinely inspired by God's revelation. Men promote these types of beliefs in order to be seen as more godly, more kind of in the know, you know. And so it's really rooted in pride rather than humility. They do, in effect, disclaim that Christ is the only mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, as the scripture says. Now, the thing about this is, most of these things look like they're really good things. Now, I've been in churches where they have a really strong discipleship program, and the church begins to, to divide over the haves and the have-nots. Oh, I've been through discipleship. I've been discipled. I'm one of the holy ones here. And then there's those who haven't gone through the program yet. Yeah, I haven't been discipled. I'm still just a lowly scumbucket coming to church here. Someday I'll go through the program and be discipled like those holy people. But for right now, I'm just, I'm just here. I mean, churches can do that kind of thing. And God's not against discipleship. Discipleship's a good thing. Church as a way to define the holy group and the unholy group, we're adding to the scriptures. And it becomes this very legalistic practice without sometimes us even knowing it. The scripture says that Christ is the head of the church. And in this passage, unlike most New Testament passages, when it says Christ is the head of the church, most of the time it means that Christ is in a position of authority over the church. But here it's not saying that. Here it's saying that Christ is actually the growth. Uh, uh, he's, he's the head for growth's sake. The body grows in width and depth, and the source is always Christ himself. Listen, I, I can preach my guts out, and I can't change a human heart. I can't change any. I can't change you. I can't, I can't, I mean, I can point you to the truth, but I can't be the truth for you. Neither can Pastor Derek, neither can Pastor John, neither can anybody else. But here in this passage is saying, listen, Jesus is the, uh, the head of the church. So when the church grows numerically, so the church grows in width, more people get saved. That's at, the, that's at the cause of Christ, not anybody else. When the church grows in depth by people growing in Christ, by them becoming more like him, becoming discipled and growing, of course, he uses us to be a hand in that. But at the end of the day, it's God the one who's changing people's hearts. He's the one who's transforming us. And so all of this is for uh, Christ's sake. The source of that is always Christ himself. And so we see here that any sort of legalism or elitism is divisive, it's unbiblical. And the real danger is that it always looks like righteousness, but it has an evil foundation, self-righteousness. And it promotes an elitism that attempts to push out Christians with different opinions. Uh, by the way, when we talk about the Old Testament law and the ceremonial law and all of that being gone, uh, I, I do hear people wanting to take bits and pieces of that and apply it to lives. And, and part of uh, uh, all of my lost friends when they say, oh, you don't believe the whole Bible, do you? I say, of course I do. Well, you know, in Leviticus it says that uh, disobedient children should be killed. Do you kill your children for being disobedient? Of course not because that part of the law is gone, it's past. I believe that it was true for that time, but Jesus changed that. It doesn't make it untrue. 
Listen, God doesn't change his opinion. Being disobedient to your parents is still wrong, but the way God's dealing with it is different. Hope that provides more truth than confusion for you. But folks, listen, this kind of legalism or elitism, it steals ours and others' freedom in Christ and our liberty to be led by him. In fact, it's really rooted in unbelief if you want to know the truth about it. Because if, if I want to tell you exactly how to live your life in every area and not let Jesus do it, what I'm basically saying is I don't believe Christ can finish the work he started in your life. So I got to do it for him. So folks, we need to stay away from that. That, that, that's really unbelief in God to do what he wants to do in your life. Now, you know, another just example of that in, in reality, if somebody has had a real serious alcohol problem, they receive Christ as their savior, they stop drinking, and they have a deep conviction not to go into a bar. I respect that. I respect it. And I tell them, listen, if you have a deep conviction about that, you need to obey God's spirit in you and not go to a bar for any reason ever. Don't go to a wedding where they're doing a, a champagne toast. You know, Whatever you have to do to do the right thing, do it. That doesn't mean that I can't go into a bar, hang out with some of my friends, drink a Diet Coke, and, and talk to some people about Jesus. See, it doesn't make, one's not right, one's not wrong. In those areas, God deals with us differently. But when we begin to say, my idea is the right one, I'm going I'm to have this legalism thing that's not really in the Bible, but that it should be. <laughs> you know, when we begin to think like that, folks, we're about to divide the body and create uh, uh, disunity. The last principle I want you to see in this passage is this one. Practice godliness rather than religious regulations. Now, I know that at this point, you may be saying, oh, right, you know, the pastor's not going to call me out for anything. I can do whatever I want and just say, Jesus is leading me. No, 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 don't go there. Look at verses 20 through 23. It says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Why do you do that? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of, or the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's saying here, if we spiritually died with Christ, we're dead to our sins and dead to the ceremonial law, why would we again be alive to these rules and regulations? Under the ceremonial law, there was a religious pollution that kind of takes place by touching certain things like a dead body or meat sacrificed to idols or the tasting of that meat. Some men were teaching that there was a spiritual wisdom in following the law of Moses alongside and in conjunction with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, you can't do that. You can't follow the laws that point to something and the reality of it afterwards pointing back to it at the same time. This thinking is in, really a spiritual contradiction uh, to the freedom that comes from knowing and worshiping Christ that we talked about last week. We need to stand fast in our liberty in Christ that comes from a true relationship with him rather than a shadowy religion of following a bunch of rules about him. While these things have a show of wisdom, 
as the scripture says, they really come with a foolishness that minimizes the gospel and Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And they do nothing to keep us from being sinful. In reality, folks, listen, if, if obeying the law could have fixed our sinfulness, Jesus wouldn't have ever had to come. It didn't fix it. It just pointed out our sinfulness. It just made it clear to everybody that we couldn't live up to it. And then we want to try and put these rules back on ourselves? Doesn't make any sense. True godliness, folks, true godliness is found in a relationship with Jesus and a yielding to, yielding to God's word and God's spirit that comes into us when we give our lives to him. That's the only way we achieve godliness it's not through a bunch of rules and regulations. It's not through trying to be uh, more kind of self-righteous. It's really found in having a deep and abiding relationship with God. When we realize the depth of our sinfulness, the depth of our lostness, the depth of the distance between God and us that used to exist, and then when we really get, when we really believe and understand that Jesus came to this earth and he gave his life to pay for our sins, to buy us forgiveness, and to give us a true a victory over the enemy. And we begin to live in that, folks. Listen, we have, we have a, a deep relationship with him. We have a connection with him. Uh, we speak to him and we hear him speak back, not audibly, but he certainly guides and leads our heart. When we pray for guidance, when we pray for wisdom, when we pray for God's direction, he'll give it. Listen, he's not standing up there in the sky going, hey, try to guess what I want you to do. Try to guess it. Oh, we're gonna have to pray harder if you wanna guess what I, listen, no father does that to their kids. It's silly, we think that way, but it doesn't happen. God wants to communicate what he wants from us, what he wants us to do, how he wants us to be, where he wants us to serve, who he wants us to touch in our lives. We just don't listen very well sometimes. But folks, when we stay connected to him, it'll be clear to us. And by the way, as we're following him, if we get a little off track, that still small voice, that still small voice will drive us back. He'll move us back. We'll be, okay, I think this is what God wants. And then all of a sudden, ooh, Man, I'm, getting a, I'm just getting a bad feeling about this. I, I just, you know, this is not just bad pizza before I go to bed. This is something deeper. This is something more meaningful. God's trying to direct me another way. And he will direct us. But folks, we have to have that deep relationship with him if, if we want to be led by him that way. And again, this, folks, this does not apply to blatant and obvious sin according to the scriptures. But it does apply to everything else including the application of somewhat what we would maybe say is questionable behavior. Now, a few people that I know post things on Facebook where I'm like, well, there's no question in that. That's obviously sinful behavior. They're doing things that are absolutely contrary to God's word, black and white, clear as a bell, done. But then there are other things that, that conversations that I have with people uh, things that I see that probably I would question. But in reality, folks, uh, uh, it's not my position to question them. It's God's position to work with them. It's God's position to question them. It's God's position. To, what I need to do is get them connected to Jesus. You see, the deeper I can get them connected to Jesus, the more they're going to be in tune with him. 
And the more they're going to be led by him. And the more they're going to hear from him. And the more they're going to be and do what he wants. And Paul's just saying here, folks, listen, don't add a bunch of stuff. God's word is so complete just as it is. Don't add a bunch of things to yourself and to others to fulfill some kind of deeper or more cool righteousness or whatever. And listen, I've got friends that just come up with some really crazy godly things. I had a friend who uh, told me one, one week, he said, hey, listen, man, you know, I, I, we had this great worship time and we heard angels singing. I'm like, what? And I said, get me the tape. You guys tape your services. He said, oh, yeah, we tape our services. He brought it to me. I don't know if I told you this a few weeks ago or not. I, I, this story I tell all the time because it's just, it fits this thing. But uh, I said, I want to hear the tape. So we started listening to the tape, and we got about halfway through the second song or so, and he goes, right there, do you hear it? Do you hear him? That high-pitched sing? that's an angel singing. I'm like, dude, that's feedback. <laughs> you're, you're, you're that. And it really burst his bubble. But, but they're, you know, the whole church is like this whole cool thing, and, and they're, it's almost just like, I want to be self-righteous. I want to be more godly. I want to, listen, folks, if you can live just a godly life, that's impressive enough to God. <laughs> you don't need to be coming up with crazy things. There were guys at this church, basically, that were trying to come up with things and, and do things that are just somehow self-impressive to everybody else and, and lift them up and all this goofiness. We don't need that. God doesn't need that. Now, I can tell you, in our church, in the last 11 years, We've only had a couple of small instances of these kind of things kind of rearing their heads up and, and beginning, and we kind of put them, you know, to shut them down pretty quickly. Um, but listen, you need to just uh, uh, get connected to Jesus. Get connected to Jesus. This is why we preach Jesus, folks, so you'll be connected to him, and he, he'll be able to lead your life. By the way, it's also why when you look at our member covenant that you signed when you became a member, it doesn't say a bunch of legalistic stuff. It doesn't say, hey, by the way, you have to give 10% of your gross annual salary and just submit your W-2 by April 15th, and we'll check and make sure you did it. And we're, we're checking your attendance, and if you fall below 85%, you'll get a little note in the mail that says, you know, we don't do any of that kind of stuff. What we say is, listen, will you commit, will you commit to living a godly life and letting Jesus lead you? Will you really commit to that? Because if you'll do that, folks, everything else will fall into place. It just falls into place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that guides and leads us. We thank you for the things that you tell us very specifically and that follow you better. Father, we're not only thankful for your word uh, that is perfect, but for your spirit who is also perfect and lives in us. God, help us to be more in tune with you, more in tune with your word, more in tune with your spirit, that we might be led by you in a greater way. God, protect our church. Uh, from all of these things that would, uh, this elitism and legalism and all these ideas that may seem religious and somehow good that just create division and frustration in people's lives. God, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. We thank you uh, for what you bought us by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. Father, we pray now that you would help us to live in that freedom to enjoy it, but to live godly lives because we love you and we want to be who you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.